Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. Welcome back to another home studio edition of the Need to Know podcast. I hope everyone's staying safe and healthy. And instead of the glass table of the Wilson Center studio, I am at the handmade oak production desk of my home studio. And instead of talking face-to-face as we normally do, we are bending to the realities of the current situation and using Skype to chat with our guest today. And that guest is Ben Buchanan, who is a professor at Georgetown University and a global fellow at the Wilson Center covering cybersecurity issues. Thanks for joining us today, Ben. Thanks for having me. Ben, we've had you for several events at the Wilson Center, including some classes that you have helped us do for congressional staff that we've put on. And one of the things that I like most as someone who doesn't study cyber, I'm not in the weeds on cyber policy. I don't really follow it too much in the news unless it's a huge hack of some sort. But your approach is really to boil down some large cyber concepts that often scare people like me. And bring it down into digestible and understandable pieces that policymakers can use. And now you have this book out called The Hacker in the State, which brings this wisdom to the masses. So what made you want to write this book? Um, thank you very much. That is that is very kind. I think the thing that struck me most about reading about cybersecurity for quite a long time was how theoretical and dense and abstract the discussion was. And for this book, I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to not talk about hypothetical cyber attacks like Cyber Pearl Harbor or Cyber 9-11. I wanted to not have big, dense theoretical debates. I wanted to find the stories of cyber attacks that actually happen and tell those stories in a narrative, accessible way and use those stories, use those cases as a lens through which we can understand broader and more complex issues. But the, the book itself is rooted in cases that actually happen, digital spy versus spy stories. Um, and I think I think that is the motivation uh, for me is to, to find and tell those stories. So give us the most interesting story in the book, not to give away anything, but what kind of cyber attack are we talking about here? What are the consequences of that? I mean, we know about some things, but I'm sure some things like the Stuxnet attack, but I'm sure a lot of these attacks don't rise to a level where the average person hears about them. That's right. So the, the book covers the, the whole range from espionage to attack to what I call a destabilization. In the espionage category, talk a lot about the geography of cyberspace. And I think we think that cyberspace has no geography, that it's someplace else. The cloud is above us. Cell phone networks, Wi-Fi networks are invisible. But cyberspace very much has a geography uh, in the form of fiber optic cables and telecommunication sites. So talk about how nations tap these cables, a big effort by the United States and its allies to tap fiber optic cables all over the world. That's part of the espionage uh, discussion. In the attack discussion, talk about Stuxnet, of course, talk about the attack on Sony. We also talk about some attacks that might not have made as much uh, splash in the American media. Two blackouts in Ukraine in 2015 and 2016 caused by Russian hackers, reasonably short, around six hours uh, in some cases, but I think a harbinger of things to come in terms of the capacity for dedicated and talented hackers to turn off the power using pretty sophisticated cyber attack tools. And then in the destabilization section of the book, talk about things like North Korean bank hacking, where they 
um, hopscotch between financial institutions, including cryptocurrency institutions all over the world, as a way of bringing back hundreds of millions of dollars, it seems, um, to fund their illicit nuclear program and to fund their regime. Hacking is mm. a tool for them to get the desperately needed hard currency that they so crave. So in each of these sections of the book, there's, there's different stories, some of which are well known, some which aren't, that I think animate the overall narrative of hacking as a tool of statecraft. And this has been an ever-evolving tool of statecraft. We used to see this type of thing in 1990s James Bond-style movies, but now we're actually seeing countries bring down infrastructure of other countries, which would seem like an act of war to me, but we haven't seen states respond in that way so far. So what are your thoughts on that? I think that's exactly right. And one of the uh, proposed titles for this book was The Gray Zone. Um, which is to say that all of these activities take place in that gray zone between peace and war. And what's so remarkable about this gray zone is that it's nations themselves that define its contours. And over the last 20 or so years, cyber attacks, cyber operations have been increasingly aggressive, increasingly destructive. And for the most part, every single nation has been content to let that happen. And no one's credibly drawn a line in the sand and said, we're going to push back. There hasn't been a lot of major retaliation for cyber attacks. And as a result, the gray zone continues to expand and Hmm. nations continue to be more aggressive. And that's a trend we see over the last 20 years. And also in the last 20 years, if you go back to 9-11, we really started seeing a lot of warnings and concerns about some kind of cyber attack. And so it seems like, you know, we've we've been waiting for the big one, right? Just like we were waiting for the big earthquake, we've been waiting for the big global pandemic. And, uh, you know, we're also waiting for this big cyber attack. So where has that been? Has anybody tried and failed? Um, Or is it just, are we still waiting on it? I think the closest thing we've seen are the blackouts in Ukraine. But those are, are still well short, I think, of what we had imagined. And part of the animating thesis of this book is that if we focus so much on that hypothetical, if we focus on uh, cyber 9-11 with cities burning and planes crashing, and we miss the activities that matter most. We miss how hacking becomes a tool of statecraft, not in an extraordinary way, but in a daily way. This is, this is an environment in which nations compete every single day for geopolitical advantage. And, and the big one may be out there, and there's, there's signs of increasing aggression that, that may lead us to that point. But there are meaningful cases and meaningful stories right now that we need to find and tell. Hmm. So then turning over to what policymakers can do, since a lot of our audience are policymakers, what's the reaction of Congress and the state department and the, the infrastructure that we have within the United States government to counter these kinds of actions? There's a saying the United States has the nicest rocks but it still lives in a very glassy house. And I think the (laughs) biggest thing for the United States to do in the world of cybersecurity is to raise the baseline level of cyber defense within this country, in our private sector, and in our public sector. There's a number of cases of really significant breaches that uh, show just extensive, for lack of a better term, malpractice on the part of the U.S. government. The Office of Personnel Management breach, probably near the top of the list. Mm -hmm. Not enough cybersecurity, not enough attention to what foreign hackers would want and not enough attention paid to, to stopping them from getting that. So th- there's no doubt that um, there's a lot that can be done on the cyber defensive side 
in terms of just the basic nuts and bolts of cyber defense. And I think that's probably some of the most important work uh, that Congress and, and agencies could do in this space. You could kind of expect those in Congress to not really understand cybersecurity. People are elected to Congress. They're not cybersecurity experts in most cases, um, but yet they are sort of forced to deal with all of the issues of a federal government outside of their own areas of expertise. And so they have to rely on people like you to be able to bring them quality information that's digestible and that they can understand. Um, when you look around at your you know, fellow academics in this field, how well do you think that they're communicating with policymakers? How often are they getting the opportunity to communicate with policymakers and really to try to bend this curve uh, in a different direction so that when the big one occurs or when the next thing occurs, and even if it's just a day-to-day -day issue, that they understand what's going on and can then react appropriately? I think there's a, a bigger gap than most people want to admit between theory and practice here. And I think my discipline uh, in the Academy of Political Science a lot of times has missed some really interesting things and some really important things in cybersecurity because of um, a preference for certain kinds of methods, um, in particular methods with a large data set or methods that rely on uh, big old-fashioned theories like deterrence. And I think um, those don't translate well to, to the arena of, of cyber operations. The data set uh, approach, the large and quantitative study approach, um, doesn't necessarily work because there's just not that many big cases. There's only a couple dozen, I think, really significant cases, at least that we know about. A lot of stuff is out of view, of course. And the, the theory-based approach, I think, runs aground because cyber operations are different than nuclear operations. And a lot of the theories of the Cold War were about signaling and threatening and coercion and how do you make gains in the international system as a nation when the weapons you have are too terrible for you to actually use. So how can you essentially engage in this brinksmanship? And I think cyber operations are the opposite. Cyber operations are a domain of bluffing. It's a domain, instead of bluffing at the poker table, of stacking the deck and stealing cards. And I think political science has been slow to make that adjustment. And I, I think that leads to a lot of folks in the policy world saying, hey, all this political science stuff, at least in its, in its ivory tower form, that's just pretty irrelevant. That's not going to help us. Okay, can we go a little bit more into why deterrence doesn't work? You mentioned comparing it to the Cold War and weapons that are too terrible to use. But we we had used them, and I think that there were probably some, you know, thankfully, who didn't have their finger on the button that would have used them. With cyber, though, there is the capability to do kind of the the huge attack. But I, it doesn't seem like that is really what people want. It seems to me like if you're going to make a Cold War analogy, it's not really the nuclear analogy. It's the the real just the everyday spying that went on that, you know, the USSR did in the United States and the United States did in the USSR. And it was the pilfering of like everyday documents and just kind of everyday information 
to help the other country understand more about what was going on inside of certain agencies and things like that. But it wasn't anything that we could say was this huge trove or big destructive thing. I, I agree. There's no doubt about it. I think the, the best historical analogies for cyber operations, if you want historical analogies, are not Thomas Schelling-esque nuclear deterrence, but uh, covert action, espionage, um, active measure operation, information operations, uh, which, which certainly occurred during the Cold War, but which got substantially less um, scholarly attention. And I think those are the analogies that are most fruitful if we're looking for analogies uh, in this space. There's no, there's no doubt about that. I remember reading from one former spy uh, during the Cold War who was getting so much pressure from his handlers, the USSR's handlers above him, to get more and more documents from the various moles that were within the U.S. government. And he's looking at the information he's getting back, and he doesn't think that it's any more significant than anything that you would get or just think yourself if you read the news every day. So I found that interesting. But yet, they really wanted that information, and it was really mundane, everyday information that they were getting. And I imagine it's the same with cyber, and, and every once in a while you hit a jewel that is useful. I think certainly when I talk about fiber optic uh, cable tapping or the like, uh, it's it's a remarkable trove of information that can be gathered if you've got you know essentially access to a, a big pipe of data flowing by. And then one of the biggest challenging uh, one of the biggest challenges for the agency uh, that's doing the collection is analyzing that information, figuring out what's uh, what's in there and worthwhile, and then extracting that and throwing away the rest. And this is a continual challenge for sophisticated signals intelligence agencies. And you mentioned that there's a lot of stuff that we just simply don't know. And there, no, that there's there's stuff that's just not within the public realm right now. That has to be difficult to write a book like this. And you kind of, it seems like you would feel like you have a hand tied behind your back. Are there any kind of big mysteries out there that you wish that you knew more about or things that you want to crack? Uh, but it's at this time, you're just not able to. I'm proud of the stories that I was able to tell. Uh, I think there's a lot there that, you know, many people don't, wouldn't know uh, unless they'd followed this incredibly closely for the last decade or so. Um, but everyone's got their white whale. And my white whale, the big elusive uh, mystery, is a case called the Shadow Brokers. And they're in the book. They get a whole chapter. But this is the one chapter, unlike the rest, that's a mystery story. Uh, I can I can lay out the theories at the end for what I think happened or what might have happened, but this is probably the single biggest mystery in the world of cyber operations. Mm. And it um, it's a case 2016 August 2016 it starts in which highly classified NSA documents and eventually NSA hacking tools start appearing online. So these are the tools the United States uses to. Um, carry out cyber operations against other nations and they start appearing online posted by a group that no one knows about no one's ever heard of before called the shadow brokers and the posting of these tools continues from the summer of 2016 all the way into the spring of 2017 uh, it helps enable two of the most destructive cyber attacks in history that cause billions of dollars in damage because the tools are so powerful and even now, almost four years later, after the original 
uh, unveiling of these tools, we don't know who did it. We've got theories. Many people believe it was a Russian intelligence operation. Many people believe it was a disgruntled insider or a profit-motivated insider. But it's remarkable to me that, that so long later, we don't know the answer, and there's so little discussion of the case. So hmm. it's fascinating. We, we, we probably have, I think, a big percentage of the narrative of the story, but we're missing that conclusion at the end of who did this and why. Yeah. Okay. Well, one final question for you that I usually like to ask my guests is, is there anything out there on the horizon that you think uh, people really haven't been paying enough attention to that we could see as a policy issue <laughs> probably after we get past coronavirus? Um, but anything that's out there that you really think that policymakers should be paying attention to? I am very interested in the intersection between artificial intelligence and cyber operations. One of the things that's remarkable about the stories in this book is that almost every single case I talk about is entirely manual or mostly manual and that hackers are carrying it out step by step. And, and that means that these cyber operations often unfold over months, in some cases over years. And I'm fascinated by the ways in which artificial intelligence could change that. Uh, in which it could speed up cyber operations, both on offense and on defense, can make them more potent. And I think there's a lot there that we're just beginning to uncover. This is a focus of a lot of my research at Georgetown. And I think before long, this will, by necessity, be on the policymaking agenda. Hmm. Well, that's fascinating. And it, it, uh, the whole discussion is fascinating. I really appreciate all that you do to try to bring this to people in a way that everybody can understand. And if you're out there to get the book or actually, I guess, in this this time of uh, shelter in place and stay at home, uh, you should look for it online. The Hacker and the State. The author is Ben Buchanan. He is a global fellow at the Wilson Center and professor at Georgetown University. And Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks so much for having me. That'll do it for this episode of the Need to Know podcast. But don't forget, even though we're indoors and under shelter-in-place orders and all of that, you can still expand your mind. If you have some topics that you think you'd be interested in hearing about on this podcast, shoot us an email at needtoknow at wilsoncenter.org. And also, take a look at wilsoncenter.org slash events, because a lot of our events have moved into the virtual space, and you can join either by teleconference, webcast, or webinar. So make sure you go over there and check it out. And until next time, this is the Need to Know podcast.